Hi, this is Zoe Emma of Resemble AI, leading the edge of generative voice and artificial intelligence. I'm on the edge of AI, the leading podcast bringing you authentic voices at the edge of what's possible. Hello, AI podcast passengers. Jump on in. Here's what's to come on today's journey. Find out how one audio-based AI company is facilitating a whole new wave of creativity and utility at your command. Why today's guest is inspired by leaders within corporations as large as Microsoft, as well as outside the system, doing independent work. And finally, you might be surprised to find out that this intro is an audio deep fake created with our host's permission using today's guest's groundbreaking tech. All this and more, take your seat. Welcome aboard the Edge of AI podcast. Snap into your safety belt to explore the depths of the rapidly expanding AI universe. Each episode is a dispatch featuring hyper-relevant reports from the pilots, pioneers, and passengers aboard the AI rocket ship. We explore the latest use cases and developments in AI, hear from experts building tech, and learn how this disruptive force is transforming industries and society. Welcome aboard. I'm Ron Levy, your captain for today's voyage to the edge of AI. Just like most of you, I've embraced the spirit of exploration and entrepreneurship throughout my life. From starting my own business before graduating high school to traversing the world's most challenging terrains, I've always sought out new frontiers and adventures. I built one of the largest award-winning custom home companies in Los Angeles, and most recently, I've navigated complex regulations while founding and leading a public company that is dedicated to applying technology and training. Buckle up and get ready. Let's tackle uncharted territories in AI today with curiosity as our guiding star. Today's episode, it features Zoheb Ahmed, the founder and CEO at Resemble AI, known as the Enterprise-Ready Generative Voice AI Toolkit. It's a mouthful, but it's a big toolkit that they're building. After identifying an opportunity to create entire movies, TV shows, and video games with AI-generated voices, Zoheb, he founded Resemble AI with his former roommate and fellow gamer, Saqib Mohammed. They built Resemble AI's generative voice tech rooted in consent and transparency to allow for more creative freedom and new forms of expression. Where do you hear the rest of he's got going on here? So Zoheb led engineering teams at Magic Leap, DeepenAI, Hipmunk, which was later acquired by SAP Concor, and uh, BlackBerry. At Hipmunk, he was the lead engineer of the first AI assistant for travel. He built it using modern patented NLP techniques. Zoheb graduated from the University of Toronto with a degree in computer science. Resemble AI creates custom AI voices using proprietary deep learning models that produce realistic speech synthesis using text to speech and speech to text. So it's going to be really great here is we've all used text to speech at this point and speech to text, quite honestly. We're going to go deep. We're going to find out foundation of how it's been working and much to the point of this podcast, where it's going and the amazing impact it's going to continue to have. Let's start with some background on Zoheb. When did you get into AI and how did that lead to the creation of Resemble? Yes. Thanks for having me, Ron. Resemble really started four and a half years ago now, but I think the idea kind of 
it was seeded years before then. Traditionally, if you looked at AI in 2015, it's really baffling. But in that time, deep learning wasn't really convincing per se. So the analogy that I like to make is if you roll back the clock enough, you had telephones, which Alexander Graham Bell was putting out. And famously, he was kind of rejected for the idea initially. There was a lot of feedback or pushback for why would you use a telephone? You need to like all this infrastructure and the other person needs a telephone. And so believe it or not, AI had a very similar thing. And so as we're getting started with deep learning in the early 2010s, I think learning started becoming a little bit more mainstream. A lot of the tasks were recommendation engines. You go to like e-commerce, Amazon, et cetera, and it would recommend you items. It could tell you the house price. So it could do like time series analysis of some sort. But it was really until I would say 20. 15, 2016, that we started seeing a new form of AI, which I think its earliest form was generative AI, which is now called generative AI. At that time, the model architecture was called generative adversarial networks. And there were some really interesting projects like DeepDream, which was by Google. I think it was about nine years ago now. And DeepDream basically made these really terrible looking images, had tons of repetitions, but they look pretty cool. They look like dreams. And that was really like a flicker for in my mind, at least, of what AI is going to become and what's going to enable. And that is essentially this process of creation, not just analysis, but really creating things. And I think Resemble took that idea and then we found the least served modality, which is audio. And we thought, okay, well, what if you could take the least served modality, which is audio, and then apply deep learning technology to it? What could you enable? Everything else in the world, you had writing assistance. I mean, Microsoft Word was a really powerful word processor or text processor. You had Photoshop and Illustrator. So you had image processing. CGI was already a thing. So a lot of the deep learning techniques at that time for those modalities didn't quite live up to par. But one thing that was quite obvious is if we're recording this podcast and we have audio streams, there's no way to edit audio. There's no way to change what I am saying, fix mistakes after it's been recorded. And that's kind of where we started to resemble this idea that, hey, what if we apply deep learning techniques to audio and how would it be able, how would it allow creators to kind of manipulate or change or on the fly edit audio such that it actually works in their use cases? It's not such a painful medium to experience and to like create uh, content within. So that's where we started to resemble. I'm going to try to find this for the audience, just for those that may not have even thought about the words before, but we like to get foundational knowledge. And to the degree I get it wrong or you can better it, please do. But the term generative AI, there's AI and a generative AI, amongst other things. But AI is the ability for a computer to gather information that exists and create something that exists, whereas generative AI actually creates something that's new that didn't exist before then. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. I mean, I think artificial intelligence is a very complicated word. And there's a joke amongst engineers, which is naming is like the hardest problem that you can do is name something properly. So artificial intelligence is anything from like search, like how when you're playing Pac-Man and the little enemy, little blob tries to find you, that's kind of artificial intelligence, right? It's like naive form of it, but pathfinding is artificial intelligence. When we refer to AI in today, you're absolutely correct. It's essentially... There's machine learning techniques, which is a subset of artificial intelligence that allows you to do like time series analysis. And then there's like deep learning, which kind of enhances that even further. And it's able to actually predict results or generate results based off of data it's learned from. But it's basically predicting net new results instead of looking at the data and just telling you what it sees. 
I think this breakdown is really important because for those of us that didn't go out and get degrees in this or haven't worked on it in their whole life, unless you know at least a foundational level of how these things are built, you won't know what to look for. When you're doing using AI in any fashion, generative AI, you're like, wow, I wish it did this or had this. You'll understand where to look for that so you can better it because ultimately there's not one solution. There's more solutions we can never imagine. And they're coming out every hour at this point. Yeah. So it's kind of really great. So how would you, I mean, if you broke it down, how would you say that Resemble allows someone to experience generative voice AI beyond just text-to-speech, which we're used to? Yeah. So when we started Resemble, our core premise was text-to-speech had already existed, but it was basically only utilized for accessibility purposes, right? And that was because the voices were natural enough to use in movies or games or anything creative per se. So the first thing that we really focused on, and this is kind of the bread and butter of Resemble, is voice cloning as a service. This idea that you can give it or give us or give Resemble unstructured voice data, like your own voice, and it's able to reproduce that voice and put a text-to-speech engine on top of it. Then there's layers of that. So the text-to-speech engine learns how or the this model learns voice characteristics. It learns your pitch, your prosody or naturalness, your inflections, intonation. It learns how you roll the R's, every little nuance that exists in your voice. And then you have like a text engine on top where you type in something and the model understands like how to correlate what you type versus what you say. So that's like the advancements of text-to-speech as we've done it from when we started the company to today. And then we thought about other ways of creating speech. It doesn't necessarily even have to be text-driven. So we thought about like, what if we just use voice as the input and voice as the output? So we introduced something called speech-to-speech, which is essentially my voice comes in and your voice, Ron, comes out the other side, right? And we thought that was interesting because you have so much more granular control over the output. So what I just did, uh, um, stutter, you can't do that with text-to-speech. It's kind of difficult to type out what ums and ahs and how long elongated they are. That's like, it's really painful, but it's much more natural when you just talk and then you get voice coming out the other side. So we introduced that. We introduced language dubbing. Essentially, once we have this model that's learned voice characteristics or your voice characteristics, we can allow you to speak other languages. We have this model that's learned 62 languages at the moment, and it's able to transfer your voice into a different language altogether. So you could speak Swahili or African or Korean. And that opens like a whole new section of ideas and boundaries for creators because your audience here, I'm assuming a large amount of people speak Spanish, but I'm assuming there's a subsection that I speak Spanish fluently, may not be very comfortable with English that is. So it opens up whole new audiences and new areas of development for us. What you just described is mind blowing. I mean, when you think of the use cases and how to utilize that, it's there's been sci-fi books and movies about people traveling through universe and, you know, sci-fi stuff where the language just gets translated automatically. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Being able to communicate with someone directly with inflection, with immediate translation. It's just amazing. I mean, what state is that product in for you guys? So it's in production. So we have essentially this product being used by initially with contact centers out of all folks, but even within entertainment for dubbing purposes, within games for, again, for dubbing purposes, et cetera. So it's out there. And one of the exciting things about Resemble is how much we think and we plan and we put out, but then how it all just gets torn apart because the use cases are so different that we imagine. One of my favorite startup stories is actually YouTube. YouTube started off as a dating website. And I didn't imagine that YouTube as today, couldn't really imagine that it was a dating website when I first started off. 
But I think what we've learned from YouTube and what the path we want to follow is all these tools like dubbing and speech to speech. We just want to put it into creators' hands and then let them be creative, let them understand like where to apply this technology. So our goal is always to not keep things too academic, to like wrap it in some sort of product and get it to folks that are responsible and have ideas that they want to execute on. And we let them do all the creative work. It's fantastic. But we do have to be careful with irresponsible actions. And there's one that came to mind as you were talking when you said you can program it so that I could speak and it would come out as someone else's voice I chose. There's some great joke in there about a spouse. <laughs> so I don't exactly know how to frame that, but you can imagine all the variables that come up with technology like that. It's kind of, you know, it's really important to actually deploy this in a safe manner. We've spent a ton of time. I mean, AI is so challenging. You know, all of this is groundbreaking stuff. It has so much net positive, but we have to be really careful how we deploy this technology. Like you said, something can go from a joke to being very serious extremely quickly. And it, the laws don't quite reflect what is real anymore. Like you have, SNL and you have parodies, but those are clear parodies, right? So you can get away with impersonation. It's clearly to the audience that's watching. It's clearly a parody. When you apply some of these technologies, it may not be that obvious anymore. So for us, it's really been deploying these voices as safely as possible. So we only let you clone your own voice at the moment. And then for our paying customers, they can clone voices where they have explicit consent. We built in things like watermarking and defect detection. So we've been trying to roll out like a whole toolkit, as you said, initially, of like voice AI tools that kind of not only do the generative portion of things, but also make sure that we're rolling it out in a way that's safe and friendly for everybody. The way you're operating, the way you just described it is so important. And it's what we've found throughout the industry. Most companies that are advancing real projects that are going to grow with the adoption of AI and powerful, they're doing similar to what you're talking about. They're very conscious about the damage it can do and trying to protect from that. And it's amazing. And in this case, I guess I'll say that I'm going into opinion now. It's going to be very difficult for the government to write rules and regulations around it because of the pace that it's being developed and that it changes. And by its very nature, agencies trying to regulate that move, not at that pace. Let's just say far from it. So the better the industry can police itself that way and design counterbalances to bad actors within the industry, right? And I know you've got a deep fake audio detector, right? That mm -hmm. worked on. Why don't you? Tell me a little bit more about that and sort of how it works and kind of address it from that standpoint. Yeah. You said something really interesting there where you said that government regulation, you don't want to stop innovation from occurring, right? So it's really hard to place laws when you don't, when you want to do the opposite as well. If you really think about it, this is kind of like the web all over again or the internet all over again, right? The internet first came out. And if you recall in the earlier days, basically every computer shipped with like, not shipped with, but like, they recommended you to install some sort of antivirus software, right? It seemed almost unimaginable at that time to not have like McAfee or Norton installed in a computer when you first booted it up. That was the first thing you actually did is like install antivirus because the internet was highly unregulated. It was open. It was meant to be open. And that was like the beauty of it. You can make it safer by closing it down, but safer is an objective word and it's kind of stems innovation, makes it more difficult. So everyone to publish anything on the internet, you wanted as many people to participate as possible. However, with participation, you needed a safe way of doing it. And so over time, we graduated from like antivirus software, which is now the norm. Like it's not like antivirus software has disappeared. It's just built into your computer. The consumer doesn't think about it anymore. All the way to like your browser has like HTTPS access or SSL. There's a little padlock on your browser on the left-hand side of the URL. And most browsers 
if the website is not secure, will give you a warning. Initially, it was a warning. Now it's even more intrusive where it tells you, hey, you have to understand what you're about to do here is go to a website that is not behind some sort of secure SSL layer. And I think with deepfake detection, we kind of went on the same route. We looked at it as the antivirus for AI. The concept being like, hey, can we have like a general purpose machine learning model that is able to identify deepfakes, not only from Resemble, but from basically every other cloud provider out there, every open source repository out there. And we imagine it to work exactly like antivirus software works. We don't have to reinvent the whole wheel. So just like antivirus software got constant updates, you see more things, you have more training data, you train a model, you improve over time, and it catches more vulnerabilities. So our first goal was to go from a world where there was no protection to a world there was some protection, right? And so at the moment, we achieve two levels of security. About 87% of the time in the wild, we're able to detect defects, audio defects, that is. And if we train on certain data sets, so for example, if you come to us and say, hey, I'm really concerned about my voice. Well, we could add your voice to the pool and 98% of the time, we can actually identify deepfakes with your voice. So once the AI has seen certain voices or your voice, it's far better to like, it does a far better job at figuring out if you're real or you're fake in the wild. But that's kind of a thought process with that. Your focus on all this is audio, correct? That's your lane. That's what you guys are staying in. That's our bread and butter. We've collected terabytes worth of audio data. This for the last four and a half years as we're doing this, we've built various models for pitch tracking and vocoders, which are essentially like these models that are able to produce waveforms. We've done things around non-vocalizations. We published academic work around generating coughs and laughs and all of these non-speech related stuff. And so we were really well positioned with all of this data to actually create like the opposite model as well, which is the detection layer. I'm going to circle back. I want to know more about you. Like what brought you here? Well, you know, your resume is impeccable. It's fantastic and speaks for itself. But you were just like the rest of us, a guy, young, trying to figure out which way he wanted to go and what you wanted to do. Like, what brought you here? I find myself to be a creator of sorts myself. So the art of creating things is it resonates and it's very rewarding for me. It just so happens that I'm creating content within AI at the moment. And that's kind of why I got into programming in the first case, first place. It's this concept of you type in a piece of code and you see it on the computer and it's real. It actually does what you want it to do, right? It feels like a superpower. And I think a greater superpower than that is web development. It's this concept of like you write something and all of a sudden millions of people on the world have access to it. They can see it. They can interact with it. There's a certain adrenaline rush that occurs when someone clicks on something that you built, right? And I kind of found that really early. I would say like when I was in high school, I kind of like really started getting into web development and started building things. Most of them were utter failures. But at that point, failure wasn't really a word. It was like I didn't build things at that time to generate revenue. It wasn't like you have folks today that are starting out development with the goal of creating revenue streams for themselves. At that time, it was like people play video games. This is just like a video game for me. I type something, I instruct this computer to do something, it does it. In the earlier days, some of the things like high school, there was a website. I remember that one of the first websites I created was like a news aggregator. And in like 2007, around that time, 2006, news aggregators were actually like the hot thing to do, right? This is like Google is just getting started, but everything is a news aggregator and everything's moving in that direction. And so a lot of early programming for me was monkey see, monkey do type of thing. I got to college in the first year, I built a Groupon clone that was for college students. So essentially it was like, you take the thing that's like kind of 
everyone is gravitating towards. And I was like, oh, what if I just take this? Can I just rebuild it myself? Right. And if I have this audience, can they use it? So I think a lot of it was just a creative process. And I think like with AI and machine learning, the interesting things there were the more you create, it's like you're an artist. It's the same logic. So the more you draw, the more you write, you're more drawn towards things that don't look traditional anymore. When you write and you read, like if you write a lot and you read really like the interesting writing that you read when you write a lot is probably writing that doesn't sound like you're writing. It sounds different. Sounds like a different voice. AI and ML were very different in that perspective. I went from this area of creating web applications, web and mobile applications to this area of, well, here's a piece of software that's data driven. Like it just takes this arbitrary amount of data. It learns and then it's able to like produce results. And I think when you code a lot, you have a lot of this like logic that you write up. If this thing happens and you see these patterns, then it's this. And if you see these patterns, then it's this. And what you realize, what clicking point for me with deep learning and machine learning was really this concept of learned algorithms, these models that's like you kind of started off with a seed and then it kind of just learns from there by itself. And I think that was really impactful and interesting to me. So my first crack at machine learning in 2015 with the AI travel assistant, I would say that was a pretty big failure. Like I think failure isn't like I had a thought that it would be relatively easy to do. And then I was like, oh, these models need to be written in this language with this framework. They can only run these computers. First of all, you need really powerful computers. Where do you get those from? And then you need a lot of data. And you're like, well, I don't have a lot of data. So you kind of like with all five of those things, you get stuck. And I think that's where everything goes back to like the fundamentals of programming again. Like, okay, you have these five problems. How do you like build from ground up to solve these problems? So generally just problem solving, creativity, I think like one thing leads to another. And, and I'm pretty sure Resemble kind of like fits right into that realm or that path of programming or creative programming. Some of my takeaways from all that is, first of all, you started with travel. You're revisiting it again now because that voice to a different language voice is obviously a plug-in for a travel company in a heartbeat, right? And it's a pretty big deal. So you're going to end up right back at travel. But really what I got out of everything you just said is you loved the process. You loved learning. You loved asking questions and you loved taking it to the next step without necessarily having some end goal at any given moment down the line. It's just the process itself for you has been an absolute joy. And Man, when I look at the years, you mentioned 07 till now, what's that, 15, 16 years, look what's happened. Like you said, Google was new back then, right? So look what's happened. Look what we've done. And you are, with Resemble AI, you are at the first step of what's next. And it's just brilliant to see, and it's great to see a personality like yours in it and embracing it. And I would suggest that emerging techs these days anyway, they're not typically people that want to hold things like that. They want to open source. They want to put it out there. They're not threatened by that. They know everybody's going to contribute. The more that they do, the more opportunities there are. And that's, man, I just heard that through and through with what you just described. It's amazing. But I'm not the only one that's impressed because apparently Javelin Venture Partners just blessed you with their faith in you. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? When you build stuff, you're very close to what you're building, right? It's very precious. So you want to find the right people to kind of join you and have the same perspective as you. I think Alex at Javelin, Alex is a partner at Javelin who led the round. He is from, I think the first conversation was on the exact same page as us in terms of where we're going and what we're heading towards. Creating AI responsibly is kind of like the short story with our 
mutual relationship with Javelin at the moment. But I'm so glad that I found kind of the right firm and the right partner to lead our Series A. I mean, they've been, it's still very early, but I think they've been phenomenal already. They really understand our perspective and our throughput. They understand the product we're building. They understand it's so early that we're not quite done yet as like, we're not even near being done. I don't think you could ever be done, but we're not even near to that stage as of yet. And I think I can't express my gratitude enough to the team to like actually take that leap of faith with me as well. So I think it was mutual both ways. Well, I'm going to put numbers to it because I think it's public knowledge anyway, but they led an $8 million round, which you have received, which in this world of, I'll call it venture capital and people backing things, you hear about companies getting 300,000 and you hear about companies getting 300 million, right? I mean, it's all over the map. One thing that every time I see that, I see some entrepreneur that had an idea that is going to their next step. And whether it's a few hundred thousand or a few hundred million or anything in between, it's a big step. It's a pat on the back saying, okay, we approve of what you've done in the past to get here. And we have enough faith in you that we're going to place our money there and think things are going to go right in the future. And it's a really big deal. And $8 million is a super good number. And I'm assuming it allows you to really head for your next steps. And sometimes people will say, well, that's the last round I need to do and you can grow organically. But sometimes companies grow that way for years and years and years. And eight turns to 12, turns to 20, turns to, you know, the drill. So it's pretty amazing when that step happens. And I can't pat you on the back enough, especially as glowingly as you spoke about those partners. Yeah, it's also important to like raise, as an entrepreneur, at least the general advice that I've gotten is it's important to understand how much capital you need. So in the past, like you've said, there are companies out there raising hundreds of millions of dollars as well, right? I think for me, it's what I've gotten away in the naiveness is the more capital you raise doesn't necessarily mean success. Actually, the more capital you raise, there's a threshold where it's like the point of no return. (laughs) And so you just have to be really careful and be honest with yourself as to what you can achieve. And I think that makes a healthier partnership altogether. Without a doubt. And all money is not the same money. I mean, you can have people write you checks that end up not being great partners or dominating or sending you in a direction you didn't want to go. All that can happen. But you can also get great partners that will let you see your vision through and back you all the way. And Exactly. Just, I'm really, you obviously know that based on your actions. I'm just throwing it out there for the audience that it's not all built the same. Those of you that haven't been down that road before, value yourself when you sit down at that table. And that money is not more valuable than you when you're looking at it, even as tempting as it could be sitting there. Make sure it's right. Make sure it's right for the long run. So just a little personal takeaway on that. So how are you actually using generative AI? And I'm not talking about resemble AI right now, but maybe, I mean, either you are using it or resemble is using it, but you're using something from the outside to help at this stage. And tie it to your principles and ethical statements as well. So we can kind of keep in that vein. Yeah. So. Look, I think the company and me personally use generative AI almost on a daily basis, different tools, daily basis. I think with all of the language models that are out there, I think they can build some really interesting things to automate workflows, et cetera. Everyone in the company has a piece of software called Copilot. We buy it for all of our engineers. Copilot from a company called GitHub is a piece of software that essentially writes code for you, which is like the really salesy pitch, one-liner pitch. When I say it writes code for you, it's like you got to start writing the code and it could it's like it's really smart enough to fill in the rest of the gaps. It's also great for debugging, understanding like where your code isn't like not working properly, et cetera. So we found it instrumental to just keep our velocity really high, which is always critical as you're building out a company. And just for yourself personally, right? You want that kind of feedback. 
I think with the remote work in general, I think ChatGPT and LLMs are instrumental. And I think they don't get seen by this angle quite a bit, but you and I probably will remember one of the most fascinating things about sitting in an office is the fact that you get to talk to other people, right? You get to actually like say your ideas out loud and hear feedback. In some cases, there's this concept called rubber ducks, rubber ducking, which is essentially like you have this rubber duck in front of you and you talk to the rubber duck and you solve your own question while you're talking to this person, right? It probably happens to everyone at one stage in their life is they have a problem. They're telling someone about their problem and then they realize the answer to the problem while they're explaining it to somebody else. And I think generative AI is really good at that kind of stuff. It's really good at kind of echoing things back at you. In other words, it's extremely good at helping you ideate. It's extremely good at breaking down concepts with you. And I think like day to day, that's like a constant thing. When we use Copilot and we're using various other technologies in this space, like the generative AI space, we do try to keep that ethical mindset. We're really careful about which LLMs we use. Obviously, we're handling sensitive data. So it really depends on task to task where generative AI needs to be used. So we have a policy where these technologies should be used and where they shouldn't be used. Just like you have policies for data handling, if you go work with Amazon and AWS, you hope that Amazon and AWS are storing your data in a safe way. So it's very similar with generative AI tools as well. You don't want to pollute and cross-pollute between different tasks. But yeah, I think automation is huge. I think we found it so useful across the board in the company. Yeah, what I love to hear you say is you're talking about AI security solutions and protecting your customers. That has been constant through your language through this interview anyway. And it just tells you it's forefront in what you design, how you design, what mission you're going to go down and everything else. And like you said, we would assume that we're using AWS, that it's being protected and it's all correct. And I think this next generation of products, including your own, it's good to see how much they value that. Because we do all know, you have one big breach, your company's over. Let's just go from the practical side before we get into the decency side. So I think that that's a really big deal. But talk to me about your neural speech AI watermark. Yeah, we named it Perth, Perceptual Threshold. Again, naming is hard, right? So when engineers name things, they have to be really creative. That one, I think the team is particularly proud of naming it after a real city in the world. Anyways, not the, the easiest one to get to, I might add. <laughs> not, not very difficult to get to. Yeah. yeah. So the watermarker was essentially our initial thought with the watermarker. This is like very interesting and very transparent as to like what we thought and then what ended up happening. What's happening rather right now. So we thought of this watermarker of a way to like detect our own defects, right? So resemble produces things. Can we detect like whether resemble what resemble produces and can we detect it ourselves? And that was the initial like go-to thing. So we came up with this concept of a deep learning model that can inject a watermark into audio. Audio files already, most of the audio files that you listen to, Spotify, et cetera, they already have watermarks in them. They're very naive watermarks. So they're very easy to remove. You could sometimes visually see them. They're not very prone to attacks. And our concept with a deep learning watermarker is, can we train a model that knows how to insert this watermark in a way that's inaudible? So you can't listen to it and you can't see it. And so if you try to like remove the watermark, it'll just distort the audio. And it's like so well-placed. The, the interesting thing is the only thing that can detect the watermark is the AI itself. So the AI can place the watermark and detect the watermark. So that was our thought process. What's really interesting about the watermarker is we're viewing it from a lens that's like very different at the moment. And as you know, like one of the core problems with generative AI is data sourcing, right? Reddit, Stack Overflow, these are websites that have tons of user-generated content and data, right? Their IP is the data they've collected, right? Twitter, for example. 
And so what you've seen recently is kind of like a lockdown of APIs, right? Like Twitter famously locked down their API a long time ago. Reddit more recently locked down their API, which caused several applications to basically shut down. Essentially, the premise there is they need to protect their data in some sort of way. Because if it's there are good actors in the world that are creating value from that data, but then there are people that are scraping this data and creating value for themselves, right? So you can assume a lot of OpenAI's models and the open source models collect data from Wikipedia and all these sources. So it's impossible for Reddit at the moment to say that this model, this text model was created using our data source. That's really difficult for them to say. What we found with audio watermarking is that if a company takes a catalog of audio and uses our watermarker, the watermarker actually persists, the watermark rather persists through training. So for example, if someone created a model based off of this conversation, right? And this conversation was watermarked. What would happen is that the model that was produced would actually have the watermark retained. So we can actually trace it all the way back to its data source. And that's actually really, really interesting for us because it allows IP protection all of a sudden. And I think that's extremely important. And I think like the world is kind of going in this direction already. Like you have OpenAI and you have tons of academic papers out there that are introducing similar concepts. Can they insert watermarks into images, into text, such that the watermarks could persist through training and they can identify these watermarks afterwards? So very similar concept with us. I think it's definitely an exciting area, but it's one of those things where we put something out there and then we're kind of observing how people are reacting to it. but. It's definitely like a huge advancement in terms of keeping everyone safe. So as a real world example, let's just to say I subscribe to that service right now. And every one of these podcasts, I employ it, right? So it's all being watermarked. If someone creates a deep fake of me saying something I would have never said, it would be very easy for me to say, everything I've done is watermarked. You can look at all of them. That one is not. Is, yeah. Is that that's, a easy? Yeah. That's essentially it is. More importantly, like if your data was used by a model to create like another person's voice, yeah. but your data was included. It's not even clear that your data was used to train that model, right? It's not even evident at this point. But what we're promising is that the output of that model, the output of that AI model that consumed your data to create another voice could actually be traced. Like we could trace it back to your podcast and say, hey, yeah. actually, you know what? I never gave the rights to my data away for trading purposes. So hopefully I explained that well. No, you did. It's all mind-blowing and it's happening so quickly. And I used to say it about the blockchain industry. It used to be a sort of single subject and you had experts in it. And slowly over the last 10 years, it got to a point somewhere in there, maybe halfway through it, where no one was an expert. They were an expert in a segment of it. It's just too big and it's too wide. And I think AI is even more so. It's just expanding into sort of every direction. Are there any use cases you're most excited about outside of what you guys are doing? But is there anything you see out there that sort of mind-blowing for you that's coming to be? There's so much. I think the entire area of creativity around text to video is very interesting. I think that's going to be like a game changer for quite a few industries. The art of like describing what a video should look like and that process being automated with AI, it sounds extremely fascinating. Even with text modeling, I think I can imagine we're getting so close to that sci-fi world now where the modality in which we're consuming information is about to change. It's not going to be traditionally like it's hard to predict, by the way, this is all predictions, but this concept of, because I worked in this chatbot space really early on, and the promise there was you would just talk naturally to this assistant who will naturally talk back to you and you can have a conversation. And I think that opens up a whole new way of experiencing information and therefore the internet. You no longer need to like, I think like 
imagine you go into like a store, like a supermarket, and you have to like look for this thing, look for these items, right? Which is not foreign because everyone's done it. Now we had to step up with like now you have an app that allows you to basically search or browse on a mobile phone, which is nicely neatly categorized. You're not physically walking through lanes anymore to find the right product. There's some recommendations placed everywhere so that you can go from one product to like similar products. But we're heading towards a space where that may not be the case either. It might be the world where you just conversationally describe, I'm looking for this vague thing. I'm looking like, I have this shirt and I want to find the right jacket, right? And it knows what you're talking Like you didn't describe the color of the shirt. You didn't describe anything about it, but it is able to go figure that out. I think it's like very interesting in terms of how we're consuming information. I think what's also really interesting, I call this like this, I think there's a couple of startups I've seen working on this already, but it's kind of like the second brain concept as well. And I found this to be really interesting in perspective. It's kind of like Iron Man. Iron Man in a suit can talk to this like assistant that can kind of do any task possible, right? It's like a dream. But I think we're getting very close to that dream of having a second brain, someone that kind of like looks at exactly what you're doing and kind of learns from all of that data that your brain is learning from. And then you could kind of converse with this thing that has like a longer memory than you do. And I think that's very interesting. There's a company called rewind.ai. Okay. They're doing, I think that exactly, which is literally called the second brain and make their life easier. But I think it's extremely powerful. It's extremely interesting to like augment humans in general. Oh my gosh. It's all happening so quick. So kind of any last thoughts in regards to generative AI, deep learning, speech automation before we leave this segment here? Is there anything else that came to mind that you'd like to cover or are we good? No, I think we're good. I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah. All yeah. right, great. I do want to come back to, so Resemble AI, you guys operate out of Canada. Is that accurate? So I'm Canadian and my co-founder is Canadian. So we started the company in Toronto, but when I worked for the startups and my previous companies, they were all in the Bay Area. And I think the Bay Area has some elements of magic and it's being revived at the moment. So we have an office down in San Francisco and, and one in Toronto. All right, fantastic. So you're working both. All right, well, now it's time for what we call AI wants to know. AI is curious and so are we. So these are 10 quick questions designed to uncover the intriguing mysteries that AI longs to comprehend, but can't cut quite grasp. So it's a snack break in our journey. So keep the answers quick but the safety belt sign, that one's off. So let's explore more of who you are and what makes you tick. You ready for this? Let's go for it. All right. Number one, what's the first thing you ever remember being proud of? When I was in, I think this was middle school, I believe, I designed a logo. And I remember that was the first time anyone paid me $200 for a logo that I designed. And that felt kind of surreal. So, yeah. Amen. That sounds fantastic. So what is it that you need help with that you wish you did not? I think there's so many things. I think memory is one of them. Memory is the core thing. I think there's so many things going on, especially in the role that I have right now, right? I think every entrepreneur probably feels the same way, overwhelmed with the amount of data that's thrown at us. Maybe people feel the same way as well. And I think if I didn't have to like remember so much, or if there was something to help me remember, I feel like there's constantly this guilt of like losing knowledge. It's like this constant thing. If you don't write for a little bit, you lose the ability to write to a certain degree. And I wish that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, your next product could be an external hard drive for your brain, straps around your chest or something. You never know. But that was a fascinating answer. I kind of loved it. What do others often look to you for help with? I mean, I wish I could be helpful in any way possible. So anything, honestly, like I think I have some skills. I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room. I'm definitely not like the most creative person in the room either. But wherever I can lend a hand, I, I think just having a different perspective on things, I think that's that's typically where people 
come to me. And especially within the company as well, what I tried doing is making sure I could lend a hand in every aspect of what we're doing, whether it be marketing, sales, et cetera. I think there's a perspective that comes from each individual. and I often try to just help wherever I can. Fabulous. Well, number four now, what do you treasure most about your human abilities? How high resolution they are. Have you ever taken a picture? And then you take this picture and you're like, wow, it looks so much better in real life. <laughs> no, the picture. The picture looks terrible. The picture does no justice to what I'm seeing right now. It's humbling, I think, to understand how far we've come, but yet how far we have to go in terms of like you see a waterfall and a waterfall in a picture looks very different than the waterfall it does in real life, right? So yeah, it's very I, I, What a powerful answer and so accurate. Obviously, the word Mother Nature comes in and I'm sure you could do uh, virtual reality with this stuff. It's still not the same as standing in front of that waterfall, feeling the mist coming off of it and every other sensory that fires on it. Really great answer. I, I kind of love it. Number five, throughout your whole life, what is the most consistent thing about you? I think the most consistent thing about me is that I can't sit still. I have to keep doing something, which is probably how I ended up where I am right now. So that's probably, as far as I can remember, that's been the constant. Well, it's funny because you almost answered the other, the, the next question, which is the opposite with the same answer. Number six, throughout your whole life, what has changed the most? And I would say where you're sitting, but go ahead. <laughs> where I'm sitting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where I'm sitting. I think the mindset's still the same when I look back. I think it's just where I'm sitting that's changed the most. But I think there's a level of maturity, I hope. I think the biggest thing is also, I've learned this kind of, I don't know, it's more reflective than anything, but not being able to control outcomes. And I think that's like a huge part of machine learning. When I got into machine learning, my mindset changed from, I write this piece of code, it does exactly what I wanted to do, to this algorithm that I really don't know what it's doing. And I think like the outcome, there's a randomness to this outcome. And I think you just kind of have to accept it. All right, number seven, what do you find strangest about reality? It's funny because I'm answering like the next question with the previous one really well yeah. here. So <laughs> the randomness factor in reality, I think, is it's extraordinary. I think it's really difficult to explain in words, especially the further you go into artificial intelligence, the more you realize like how complicated we are as humans. We have biases. We're not rational. AI is fairly rational, right? It learns from data. It knows what's it thinks it's right and what it thinks is wrong. For humans, we're really irrational, right? We make decisions and we say things and we do things that are sometimes not rational at all. And we do it meaningfully. We don't do it like without knowing. So I think it's really strange. It's really strange part about being human. Yep. So we've all had those moments in life where we feel really alive, be a vent or a moment, but something happens and we feel incredibly alive. What's the most recent example of that for you? That was a tough one to answer. I probably will okay, skip on good. that one. Yeah. Happy to move on. Happy to move on. Your most unique trait. I think I'm very good at the longer I've been doing Everything. Uh, the thing I've realized the most is I'm very good at breaking down problems. And I think that's such an important skill set to have and trait to have. I think no matter what you're doing, the concept of like breaking things down to like fundamentals is extremely interesting. And I think like I can now appreciate and understand why people love to do woodworking, for example, and to like construction, all that stuff, like physical labor work is because there's a certain satisfaction that is being able to break down a really complicated structure or building into like, here's a block that I need to put somewhere to get started. And I think that's fairly difficult to grasp. I'm in the middle of a book right now. It's called Shop Class for Soul Craft. And it covers exactly what you're talking about. Because as you well know, a lot of shop classes don't have the funding. They've been shut down. And uh, kids don't get that in school. But there's something to be said about physically putting things together, making them work, planning them out, that is a learning process your brain needs to know. So you're preaching to the choir on that one. I think it's just amazing. Yeah. 
Okay, this is number 10. So you're done with this quiz part of the podcast. But if you weren't human, what would you be? If I wasn't human, what would I be? I take any bird, honestly. Yeah, have you ever seen a bird fly and you're just like, wow, how did that work? How does that work? (laughs) Like, where does the momentum come from? Like, how is it like just instant? A plane doesn't fly that way. A plane needs momentum to lift off, but a bird doesn't. Or it's very minute. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) And perspective, which a lot of you didn't use that word in this podcast, but you did in essence. And birds get different perspectives, right? They can get above things, look down and widen out the picture. And that's a beautiful thing to watch. So, yeah, it's really great. So congratulations. You made it through those 10 questions. We're going to want to talk about AI leaders and influencers because you're so deep in it. and You're doing some super cutting edge and amazing things. There have to be some leaders and influences and influencers that have sort of motivated you or you've learned from and have sent in this direction. Do any come to mind? Yeah, I think there's a couple. The first one is a gentleman that is extremely different than I am, probably. A guy named Satya Nadella. He's the CEO of Microsoft. I know everyone like speaks very highly of Satya. He's like an extremely good leader. But within this AI space, I think he has made some of the most right calls possible. And I think it's like the way I look at it and the reason he's an inspiration is because it's extremely difficult to unlearn, right? It's extremely difficult to be in the thick of things for decades and have a culture, have a, from a business perspective, have a product, have products that work in a certain way, and to take a step back and be like, let's scrap everything. And if we introduce AI, what could we do better? And I think Satya has like gone down the same track is everything from the acquisitions that Microsoft has made with GitHub all the way down to the adoption of AI within Microsoft and those suite of tools. I think he's really turned Microsoft around. It's a company that developers love all of a sudden. The community loves it all of a sudden. All of a sudden, meaning like last like ever since he took over, the perception was extremely different before. I think he's made the right calls. And the second person, a guy named Peter Levels. And there's so many of these like indie developers out there. They're so inspirational. They're like solo or like a couple of people sitting in a room that are essentially doing what a startup would dream of doing maybe a decade ago, right? Or maybe even five years ago. And that just goes to show like the resourcefulness that AI allows for, and general technology allows for given if you have kind of the right mentality and you have kind of the right persistence. I think there's a lot of these tools out there now at your disposal more than ever. I think it's to actually build something that's quite large with very few people, very few resources. So yeah, two very different people, but both of them have done, I think, extraordinary work. Fantastic. And I love what you said about Satya because Microsoft should have died many times. I mean, any company in a tech world that's changing like that, usually your old technology becomes your anchor you're dragging at some later date, right? And others can move more nimbly and pass you, but they have been consistent. It is truly amazing. And the other thing that people are hungry for that are in the industry, getting in the industry are resources. So do you have any sort of resource list or any top level places you go to keep current on what's going on? So I would say there's like a couple of places that you can go, a couple of resources that I look towards. The first is GitHub. I think GitHub is just like this ecosystem. It's like a social network for like tech people, right? That's exactly what it is. It's transformed from this place where people just take like collaborate and put code to this place where I think people share ideas. And so there's tons of things to be inspired by on GitHub, tons of interesting people to actually connect with on GitHub. It's a little bit difficult because it doesn't act like a social network. So you can't like, it's a bit difficult to get to them. But if you're persistent enough, you'll figure it out. The second is as a podcast that I listen to somewhat frequently, but it's by a gentleman named Lex Friedman. 
And it started off as the AI podcast years ago. And he has some of the most phenomenal people with him to talk for two, three, four hour sessions on wow. deep topics. And I think there's a lot to learn. And they get very particular because the audience and the guests rather is so good at what they do that there's no choice but for the guests to be really deep into like the topic that they're really good at. But that's kind of the fun about it. We can, it's interesting to hear about people that are general technologists, programmers, et cetera, that are like just phenomenal. Even within the AI space, it turns out if you have someone that was doing great work with just programming and software before, their work will just like transition into AI. I think that there's, it's the fundamentals are pretty much the same. Reasoning, logic, programming, math fundamentals are pretty much exactly the same. So I would say that the podcast and the just GitHub as a resource, probably where it would go. Both are great. If you could leave our listeners with a tip on using whether it's chat GPT or some of the more mainstream common AI tools that are now being used six months ago, they weren't, they are now from a professional like you or an expert like yourself. Is there any tips on you could throw out like, how would you get the most out of those by using them for general population? I think you have to play a lot. So the first tip is like, just play. These tools might be a little bit difficult to grasp, but they're much easier than tools that pre-exist. So it's much easier to use ChatGPT and become a master of ChatGPT than it is to like, I don't know, use Photoshop to a certain degree. So I'd probably recommend just do that. The other thing is once you understand how these tools work, you can fit them into your workflow. And then I think the more you play with these tools, the more you realize the relationship between you and the tool is like you and an employee. It's very much like you can instruct what the tool to do and it'll go do it. To a certain point, I think it's worthwhile to not learn how to code anymore, not learn how to program. It's better to just learn how these tools work. Just yesterday, I saw a programming language that was built off of LLMs. So instead of writing Python or Java, JavaScript, whatever you want, C++, you would essentially write natural language and it would run a program for you. So I think some of these concepts are really changing. And in order to actually get there, you just have to like play with some of these tools and understand like what that relationship is, what you can make these tools do. And I think like bending them the right way, you can make them do some really interesting things. One thing I've seen is you get on it to begin with and you start using it and you'll ask a single question, you can't believe the answer. And it's not natural to then go deeper and deeper and deeper, but you don't get charged by the word. Twist it. I want it half as long. I want it twice as long. Add in this component. The more you do that, every step is learning for you, right? And learning to use the tool better. So it's all brand new. We're all just exploring it. So I would just say, absolutely, just go for it and play. There may be people that you want to send a shout out to, people that have helped you along the way or helping you now that you really want to show some appreciation to. Maybe we can take a moment and let you do that now. I'll keep it like as a collective group of people for this. I think people that are doing open source work in general, even before AI, like I said earlier, I learned programming with like a monkey see, monkey do attitude. So from the earliest days of like learning how to code, et cetera, it's just looking at resources and open source code, stuff that's been published and trying to understand how they did it and trying to learn. It's kind of like you learn how to write the same way. If you want to be a better writer, just start copying writers. You'll start being a better writer. So I think the collective group of folks that are doing that are open source contributors that are not only creating code, but also creating tutorials, books, just overall material. I think that there's a lot of great work out there. One of the things that's happening is I'm seeing work go from being academic and being published as papers to being published as open source work, which tells you a lot about like where the world's heading. It's not about like coming up with novel ideas and papers and pursuing a PhD. You can actually just like to the point now where you can actually take a bunch of things, glue them together and have a novel idea. 
So I think one particular case is this, there's a repository or a GitHub page called AutoGPT. And AutoGPT is this concept of these large language models like ChatGPT talking to themselves. Like you have multiple instances given a problem, they basically talk to each other and instruct each other what to do next. And I think that's really fascinating because it's fairly novel. So yeah, I think generally we're seeing like this collective group of open source contributors. They've been really inspirational. Well, I got to tell you, Resemble AI is amazing. And I'm saying it because I truly am blown away with what you guys are doing. And I have no doubt that it's going to, as it grows, be more and more a part of the fabric. And you guys are the only ones I know of anyway doing this with audio. And it's critically important as all of us are worried that our own voices are going to get bootlegged, uh, for lack of a better term. And you guys are so far ahead. It's really, really fantastic. So Resemble AI, where would you send our listeners if they want to learn more or follow what you're doing and keep updated or even possibly reach out to you? Yeah, they can obviously visit our website, resemble.ai. We're on Twitter, Resemble AI. It's kind of where we post most of our, all of our updates. And then if they want to reach out to the team, it's pretty simple. Just team at resemble.ai. It's me, it's Sohei at resemble.ai. I'm fairly open. And if there's anyone that wants to talk more, connect, I'm happy to do so. Zohab, you've been absolutely amazing. So it is time for another safe landing at Outer Edges of the AI Universe today. This is your captain, Ron Levy. And on behalf of our guest and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for choosing to voyage with us today. We wish you a safe and enjoyable continuation of your journey. When you come back aboard, make sure to bring a friend. Our starship is always ready for more adventures. Head over to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and share your thoughts. Your support and feedback mean the world to us. Don't forget to visit edgeofai.co where you can learn more and connect with us on all the major social platforms by searching Edge of AI. That's Edge of underscore AI. Lots going on there online. Before we sign off, mark your calendars for our next voyage. Where The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. 
Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice.